Connecticut and Massachusetts, ZM Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We got you. Google or add us on Facebook at ZandMHomes.com. Bexy's musical podcast. Drugs and music have always had this strange and toxic relationship with each other. On one hand, you've had some of the greatest songs in history inspired by it. And then on the other hand, it's destructive and unforgiving. In other words, the very stuff that has inspired the greatest rock and roll songs in the world is the very same thing that can take it all away. It's as if the emotional vulnerabilities that allow someone to find solace in making music can also be the same toxic stuff that can feed the disease of addiction, making some feel they can't have one without the other. Unfortunately, far too many people have succumbed to their abuses and have never been able to find their way out. And throughout music history, there has been this dangerous tendency to romanticize these tragedies, as if these self-destructive legacies were somehow enhanced by the drugs that would eventually rob them of their talent, their abilities, and their ambitions. But it's even more insidious than that, because these same addictions can also have the ability to rob people of their families, their friends, their support systems, and sometimes their willingness to seek help. What we sometimes fail to fully understand are these legends are also human beings who are suffering from the same insecurities, traumas, and pain that many of us often feel. Combine that with the need to self-medicate with the drugs and alcohol that many of us consume eventually consumes the ones who are most at risk, and you don't have to be a rock star to get there. In 1991, guitarist Johnny Thunders, formerly of the New York Dolls, died in New Orleans at the age of 38 under mysterious circumstances. Some will tell you that he was robbed and then murdered for drug money. Some will say he died from an overdose. Others will tell you that he lost his battle with leukemia. Whatever the truth might be or might have been, there's no dispute that Johnny Thunders was both driven and consumed by his demons. Whatever the circumstances might have been, Johnny Thunders and his musical legacy have been partially clouded by the grip of his addictions. And his reputation for that was at times well-earned. But this was a guy who was part of two of the most influential bands in history, the New York Dolls and the band he would form with former New York Dolls drummer Jerry Nolan, known as the Heartbreakers, a band whose one and only album is still considered to be a punk rock classic. In both cases, these two bands crumbled before anyone would have a chance to discover their greatness. Even his solo work that seemed to have so much promise would eventually follow suit. In particular, his amazing 1978 solo album, so Alone, featuring the brilliant track, You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory. And it's a terrible shame, because had it not been for the drugs and the erratic and often unreliable behavior that followed, Johnny Thunders would have been granted the respect and admiration that his talent deserved. Unfortunately, he was often his own worst enemy, which resulted in his reputation obscuring the promise of what might have been. In 1987, writer Nina Antonia wrote the definitive, completely authorized biography of Johnny Thunder's life. The book was entitled Johnny Thunders in Cold Blood. It's a book that takes a look at not only the addictions that fueled his life, but also looks at the life that led up to them. Nina was not only a fan of Johnny Thunder, she got to know him personally. And the book, which now has been reissued by Jawbone Press, 
offers an unapologetic glimpse into a man whose legacy is profoundly and undeniably misunderstood. This is my conversation with rock biographer Nina Antonia on Banksy's Musical Podcast. So I spent a, a good deal of time reading the book, Johnny Thunders and Cold Blood. I absolutely, I absolutely loved it. But, you know, the, the truth is that I'm reading it, I'm thinking, well, you know, you could very easily have written the story of uh, Sylvain or, or Johansson or, or Arthur Kane. What, what was it about Johnny Thunders that drew you to write the story about him? Yeah, because they, they were all interesting characters uh, with great background stories. But I I mean, I felt out of all of them, Johnny was the essence of rock and roll. He was a very exciting performer, a great dandy. Um, I felt like he had a mythos already attached to him. He was like somebody who was 24-7 in a, in a film. And although I briefly met Johansson and... I met Sylvain and everything. They were, well, Johansson, obviously, Scorsese's picked up on him. Right. They were all unusual, colorful characters, but for me, it was Johnny that had the charisma. I think when, you know, whenever I read things about, about Johnny, and, and I think what's so telling about it is, and apart from your book, there's this immediate fixation on on the drug addiction alone. And I think that what gets lost in that discussion is the influence that he had and uh, and the what the dolls had on uh, music and culture to me that's I think you agree that's where the bigger story lies as if no one can tell the story both ways but but you did tell me about that do you think that he has been fairly reported on or or that story has been fairly reported during the last uh, fifty no, years? No, I, I think that one of the problems is that the internet has opened the floodgates to people who aren't professional journalists and just go ahead and say whatever they they want. They don't do their research properly. They don't sit down and read the book or watch Danny Garcia's film. Um, and they like to, I mean, all of our culture is about making everything as, as exciting and sleazy as possible, but we lose the truth in that. I think he did a really great job of, of addressing both aspects of his life. I mean, there's there's a lot of different there's a lot of different wheels in motion here without any condemnation or dismissiveness like you would read in, I mean, not just online, but, you know, even in magazines back, even when he was still alive in the eighties and, and, and maybe in early nineties, I think most people had a really hard time separating the legacy from the reality of the guy. And, and you were able to kind of see through that and offer actually, I think a very fair portrayal of what Johnny Thunders was all about. It's not just that he was addicted to drugs, but that there were so many different layers to his to his story. How do you how do you respond to that? I mean, I think I think it's because the book grew up with me, and I learned to write in a nuanced way. And unless you have a seasoned writer writing about certain things, then it will come out as kind of this. Flop line obsession with with the drugs and then there's nothing else but that that wasn't the total of johnny's story I, hang on it was more like that he managed to keep going despite his addiction i absolutely agree with that and, and i think that's you know part of the, the beauty of the story i mean here's a guy who had you know significant issues but you know here he is also writing these you know these iconic anthems 
throughout his career, whether it's with the New York Dolls, the Heartbreakers, or even his his solo work. I mean, there's there's clearly a complexity about who he was. Well, um, I was going to say he was a very wounded person, and unfortunately, as we've seen over and over again, say with Kurt Cobain, wounded people sometimes self-medicate, and even though that ends up being their downfall, that's how they try and manage life. You got a chance to to know Johnny while you were compiling the book, and you certainly talk about meeting him in the in the book and 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 getting to understand him. When you did meet him for the first time, what were your impressions of him? Did did he? I mean, you, you talked about how he seemed maybe a little bit distant early on, but once you started to to crack that, what did you learn about him right away? Well, I mean, I've just to go back to that. The first time I met him was it was in Soho in a pub. And I couldn't speak for the first 15, 20 minutes because he was like my hero. <laughs> you know, I just like silent. I was like, oh, God, I can't move. <laughs> um, and also, he, as I say, he was very charismatic. He was there with his German manager. But what I also realized very quickly is that actually he was quite shy when he wasn't being the Johnny Thunders persona. And he was just being himself. He was John Anthony Gensale. He actually was quite shy. And we eventually, it was Alan Hauser from Jungle Records was there as well. So he and Johnny's manager got into conversation and Johnny and I got into conversation. And I think he said, if if you're going to do this, I just want you to observe everything that's going on with me. I guess, and he, I can't remember how he phrased it. He said, I, I just don't like talking about it too much, but I want you to be there you know, chronicling it. He may not have used those exact words, but that's what he implied. That's pretty trusting of him. He must have sent something in you that made him feel comfortable allowing you to do that. I mean, this was your first, this was your first book and, and, you know, you were in his mind, probably just a fan, but you know, there must've been something about that relationship between the two of you that made it, that made it comfortable for him to allow you to do this. Well, I mean, the, the, manuscript of the book had gone through Alan, that jungle, and then it had gone on to Johnny's manager. So he was quite, he was kind of protected anyway. But I also think that had I been a really hard-ass professional <laughs> male journalist, then it would have happened. It would have backfired. I think it was my naivety um, that kind of peeled, you know? Yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't a hustler or anything and i didn't write for a big scary paper so johnny could relax there's an interesting part of the uh, of the book where you talk about how you learn become familiar with the new york dolls and i look at that in in terms of you know well, how did americans get to know about the new york dolls and most americans didn't at uh, at mm -hmm. the time but in in great britain there there was uh, it was different i mean i think there was probably more passion for the uh, for the new york dolls than there was here in their own their own country. I mean, they, they simply did not, they did not fly in certain areas of, of our country. It was the big Midwest that, that didn't get dolls. The dolls were, you know, the dolls were absolutely loved in Los Angeles and New York, all the capital cities, Philadelphia, everybody went crazy for them. But outside of that, they couldn't, you know, the mothers of Memphis wanted them arrested and not to have them play. So, I don't think it's strictly true. I would say that they were as loved in capital cities mm. as they were in England or in London. You became aware of them by 
viewing them in 16 magazine, which, you know, is it, I mean, I remember the magazine, it seems, it seems strange to me that that magazine targeted to teenage girls would have been where you would have spotted them for the very first time. Tell me, tell me about, about your first impressions, just looking at, at what the band was, was about. I have to speak for 16 magazine because, um, Lee Black Childers, who, um, managed the heartbreakers, 60 magazine had an energy to it. Leave like shoulders took pictures, and they did used to quite an interesting magazine. I think they featured they featured um Jim Morrison in in his fur coat. Do you remember that? And that was a huge outrage. And that was 16 magazine. I guess for me, <laughs> 16 magazine wouldn't have been my first thought of trying to find out and discover new bands. And I guess I and David Cassidy and John yeah. Osmond and all of that. But somewhere within that mix, you know somebody at, at the wheel saying let's let's do something a bit different here every now and again so god bless 16 magazine <laughs> i think of it fondly forever i watched the uh the bob harris video the old great whistle test and his reaction after they're done but it was by was to call them mock rock and as, dis- yeah. as dismissive as it was i think ultimately the band had the last laugh on that i mean how many kids in the uk were inspired by that specific performance and especially by Bob Harris's reaction to it. I, I mean, it, to me, it had to be a countless number of kids that were like, that were just like kind of snapping back at Bob Harris on that. Oh, I mean, poor Bob Harris. <laughs> he lived to regret that. But I think he also, he also captured a moment in time where the old God suddenly fell and it was time for the new god in his pronunciation of them as mock rock yeah and as you you probably read i mean morrissey saw it um paul cook saw it from the sex pistols and mick jones and joe strummer from the clash saw that we so we were all wide awake and watching <laughs> um and it was this epiphany it's like oh we've seen this vision now we know which now we know and they were a vision and i think if you watch it back again they all move in these different really strange ways and and i see bands doing that now almost copying them we don't take that for granted you know what i mean the bands in in the past even with the stones everybody aside from the front man stays relatively still that way with the dolls they're all moving and they're all very you know great to watch arthur six foot tall in his (laughs) you know thigh high blue paint and leather boots He's fantastic. The only living statue in rock and roll was what uh, David Johansson described. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that, that people have a hard time really grasping by today's standards, you know, the New York Dolls would not be seen as as that shocking. But in, in 1972, 73, it was a really big deal. 50 years ago, I mean, this was pretty scandalous to see a grown man you know, wearing a dress and, and some stores and radio stations refused to carry the That's album right. or, or play the singles just based on the cover art alone. And it's interesting that, you know, two years later, David Bowie would emerge kind of doing the same thing and yet would be treated as a mainstream artist. Well, I mean, Bowie came to see the New York Dolls and um, I think Sylvain said, and then he started going to the same person that made our shoes. So he saw the dolls. He was very, <laughs> Bowie was very good at taking influences. And he had a, a relationship with a uh, bit briefling with Sarinda Fox, who was David Johansson's girlfriend. And Andrew Bowie had a little 
little flirtation with Billy Mercier, who was the doll's first drummer. So it was all, yeah, he assessed them. There's some great pictures of him, I think, sitting at the back of Max's Kansas City watching them, and he looks like a kind of parakeet staring at them, thinking, oh, <laughs> you know, this is interesting. There's a great section in the book, which, which I really found really interesting, and, and I'm not sure I, I fully understand why they did this, but, you know, at the end of the of the New York Dolls, they get involved with Malcolm McLaren. The second album comes out. It's not that great. And then Johnny and Jerry leave the band. And I think probably for fairly good reasons at that point. But yet they get blamed for breaking up the band. But the band by that point is really already broken and had been for a while. You know, my question is, why did they get involved with Malcolm McLaren in, oh, it was in the, the other first way around, play. though. It was, it was Malcolm McLaren got involved with them. He was a huge Dolls fan. He even followed them to to Paris, you know. He was he was and did design some clothes after seeing them. I mean, girls' underwear with fake fur on them and things. And I think at that point they were desperate. And he McLaren was good at selling things. He would have said, well, "Let's try one last thing, guy," and that was to dress them in red leather and put a hammer and sickle flag up behind them, which Serinda Fox sewed. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a great look, really. Yeah. Um, be, probably because the Vietnam War was still going on. It was it was you know, and then they went to do this Outback tour, which always reminds me of of um that bit in the Blues Brothers, you know, where they're playing behind Chicken Wire. <laughs> yes. And and the band eventually fall apart in this cinematic setting of a broken down trailer park. That yeah. was owned by Jerry Nolan's stepdad, so it, it can't get more bleak and surreal than that. And they were having fried chicken. I loved the details that they were having <laughs> fried chicken and mashed potatoes. And I can imagine David Johansson waving a drumstick in the air, and he said the words, "Anybody can be replaceable." And at that point, Johnny and Jerry got on a plane, and and people were saying, "Oh, it's for the drugs and all the rest of it," but. They probably had enough by then, and and you know the red leather was. <laughs> if somebody let me see a pair of those red leather trousers, they had some, and the leather was like rubber strength factory stuff. It would have been excruciating to wear in swamp weather. <laughs> to me, one of the most amazing stories to come out of the New York Dolls, and it was recounted in the that documentary, New York Doll: The Story of Arthur Kane. It's 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 one of the one of the best rock documentaries I've, I've ever seen. I mean, this poor guy had such a hard time after oh, the, it's such a moving film. It always makes him cry. It's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. He had such a hard time after the, after the breakup. And that by the time that 2004 reunion came out, uh, it was such a validating experience for him. And, and to know that, that he was as sick as he was and, and died very soon after that. What an amazing story. Well, he was so he was so excited because we used to correspond via email. And not for that long, because I wrote a book about the New York Dolls and he enjoyed sort of telling those times to me. Um, but we did email back and forth and he was just so excited when he heard about the reunion. He was going, I don't know what to wear. Should I wear polka dots? Should I wear pink? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Oh, it's just really delightful to see him that happy. And he was he was in the uh, in the early stages of, of maybe writing his own story, too. But it never obviously he died long before he could ever finish that project. Well, hang on, because 
he was he was sending me extracts from it and it was very very good and i i tried to get him an agent i i failed i mean this is so awful i failed and what happened was that a book did come out and it was very very edited by the time you know johnny and jerry leave and they form the heartbreakers with uh, with richard hell they had built up this terrible reputation but the reality is when they when the heartbreakers were together they were arguably maybe one of the best bands in new york at the time and it took an eternity for record companies to take a chance on them simply because of that reputation it wasn't entirely undeserved by that point they were also up against people who thought that they'd had their chance with the dolls and they'd blown it so there was there was envy there as well and punk magazine which was great li- deliberately limited how many times they put johnny in there because they thought he was a bad influence and yet they put in gd ramon and nicky pop <laughs> so there, there was a little bit of backstabbing going on there but that's primarily why they came over to england but also because malcolm claren asked them so malcolm claren isn't is important to the doll story there's this codependent relationship that exists between johnny and and jerry nolan and you see that you know throughout the book it, i mean on, on at its core it's somewhat a toxic relationship and, and it's fueled by both of their addictions but primarily this dominance that that jerry seemed to have over johnny what was your thoughts about that relationship is, I mean, is that an accurate assessment or is that uh, is that off it's, it's relatively true but i i mean i think johnny needed a father figure mm. you know and he was quite emotionally volatile and jerry would have seemed like that father figure the wiser older person they did care very much for each other jerry to some degree had to rely on johnny keeping it together so he would get to play as well and this one gig i think in los angeles that that was filmed and i believe that johnny made a promise not to take any coke and be a good boy before this quite big gig and he comes out and he's he's not doing too well and you can see the disappointment in jerry's eyes ultimately what you read in the book though was that johnny was very much an insecure young man you know and he had lost relationships with his wife and children and those were really painful losses for him and you know at the same time his 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 health is declining not just with with drugs but with also with the leukemia as well and in in some respects it's it's amazing that he was able to you know record things as great as like you know so alone in 1970 it's such a brilliant record it's just you know like you said you know he was able to overcome so much musically in spite of the challenges that he had do you feel like or do you feel like he felt like the drugs were getting in his way did he ever really explain that to you well he did i mean he says you know i can in the book i can i can play just as well on drugs as often but you know i i did not use drugs and he would have lived longer but you know by the end by the end of his life he was definitely anti-drugs he would say to younger people do as i say not as i do johnny's uh, you know, death is is a murky and unclear story i mean anywhere from you know dying from an overdose to being murdered or set up or, or you know whatever it may have been or that the, the leukemia may have killed him what's your sense about what actually happened to him in new york i mean it's been a number of years since you've since you originally released the book do you do you have any clearer sense of what may have happened or is that always going to be somewhat of a mystery I've read the coroner's report. It indicates strongly that he had leukemia. He was very ill. 
there were drugs in his body, but it wasn't enough for him to overdose. Coroners always report any presence of drugs in the body, so he didn't overdose. My feeling is that, oh, and he was robbed of his money as well, that people took advantage of his vulnerability they, and they ransacked the hotel room that he was in instead of calling an ambulance and they just left him to die while tragedy, that there was nobody there to hold his hand. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a terrible, tragic story and a, and a very sad part of the book where you just realize he was, uh, you know, he was in such desperate need for, for help and... He needed someone to be there with him, and he was in a, in a way. And I mean, no, no ir- irony here, but he was just so alone in New Orleans. It's a it's a it's a very very sad story. Yeah, it's very sad because Jerry begged Johnny to go into the hospital before he went and toured in Japan, and he said he'd go stay with him overnight as well. But Johnny was scared of hospitals because they don't always. Tr- drug use as well especially not in america again the uh, the name of the book is johnny thunders and cold blood it's a great great book nina i appreciate the time today you know best of luck with it i hope uh, i hope it, uh, it 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 sells well i know it's been a book that has been in in great demand for a long time so it's wonderful that it's now back out and available for people to buy and and, and read through it again thank you so very much it was lovely talking to you appreciate it nina thank you so much take care bye-bye bye-bye the name of Nina Antonia's book is called Johnny Thunders in Cold Blood, available from Jawbone Press. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, and let all your friends know about it. You can find updates and videos on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also email me at backsatrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks to ZM Homebuyers for their support, and thanks to you for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.